right now is a confluence of three things occurring that are creating the single greatest opportunity of our entire lifetime. This will not repeat by the time we're all dead, okay? Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. What's up? Welcome back to another episode of the Action Academy Podcast, the show that helps you get rich, happy, successful, and free with a capital F in your life and business. This is your boy, as always, Brian Lubin, helping you on your journeys. So as you guys have probably noticed by now, the show has taken a slight pivot and tweak in its identity to where our tagline is basically now that we help people achieve financial independence through real estate and business acquisition. So a lot of real estate friends, you'll still have a lot of real estate episodes on the show, but I also really am interested in buying businesses, starting businesses, selling businesses, everything entrepreneurship. I am obsessed with it. And when it comes to cash flow, I will say this, real estate is great for building equity, but there is not much that's going to beat the cash flow ability of purchasing a small business. Just like 2008 was the time to buy real estate, I believe right now in this five to 10 year window is the time to buy small businesses. We have what's called the silver tsunami coming as all of the boomers are now entering retirement age. They're all leaving the workforce. They're all leaving their companies that they began and they want to transfer these over to somebody else. Most of their kids don't want to take them. So these businesses are getting shut down or they're getting sold for pennies on the dollar. And these are profitable, boring businesses. So what do we do today? I did what I always do in this podcast, baby. I just go and email the foremost author on the subject, become best friends with them, and produce a freaking awesome podcast episode for all of you guys for free. And this leads us to today's episode with none other than the author of the best-selling book, Buy Then Build, How Acquisition Entrepreneurs Outsmart the Startup Game, Walker Diable. In today's episode, we're covering all things business acquisition. How do you decide which business is best for you? How do you underwrite? How do you identify? How do you find the deals? How do you talk to the brokers, figure out which brokers are worth their salt, establish relationships with them? How do you underwrite these businesses? How do you submit an LOI and get under contract to buy these businesses? How do you finance them? A lot of questions, right? Well, thank God we got 60 minutes of a freaking awesome podcast episode that answers every single one of them. Now, free, did I say free? Yes, this is technically a free show on paper, but not in its entirety. You have to remember to pay the fee. Please share this episode with one person, just one person that you think would get value from the Action Academy podcast in general or this episode. And if you're that new person that this episode got sent to, hit the subscribe button in the top right corner and I will love you forever and always. Guys, it's showtime. Walker Dibble, let's go buy some businesses. Boom. Walker Dabble. How are you, my friend? Brian, I'm so thrilled to be here. I just, I can't wait to dive into it. I'm a big fan. Thanks for the invitation. 
Dude, likewise, man. This is this has been sensational. Me and you just got to catch up a little bit off camera, and now I'm excited to dive into it today with you. I was telling Walker for everyone listening that we began this podcast as more of a real estate specific show because that's just who was in the network. That's what we were interested in, and real estate's such a great vehicle for wealth building and cash flow. But in the end of the day, for the person that is hell bent, get out of my way. I need to get out of my job within six to twelve months. Business acquisition, when it comes to the cash flow game, it's a lot better, man, to be able to buy businesses. So first, before we get into every single part about the wacky world of business acquisition, who are you and what book have you authored that we're talking about today? <laughs> yeah. So my name is Walker Dival. I am the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Buy Then Build, How Acquisition Entrepreneurs Outsmart the Startup Game. Brian, I wrote this book I got the idea for the book in about 2004, okay? I published it in 2018. And I got the idea because as I graduated with my MBA and my startup completely failed, okay, at that time, I decided that I was going to go out and buy an existing company, right? And after just coming out of this like MBA program where it's all about business strategy, it's all all these case studies, all this business analysis, how to manage all this stuff to look at this like opaque fragmented marketplace that where there was no good data, like huge range and subjective valuations. And I couldn't get any information because everything was private, right? It's the private market. It's a really thin and opaque market and I couldn't figure out how to navigate it. And when I would tell people that I was looking to buy a business, they were, oh, that must be awesome being so rich. And I'm like, no, I'm literally just going to go to the bank. And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, it's infrastructure, revenue, earnings. Like it's bankable. I don't have to run around and raise capital. I just buy it. Right. And they're like, mm-hmm. yeah, good luck with that. So it took me a while. And um, I thought about writing the book as a series of interviews of other people that had done it. But ultimately, I decided, no, I need to go out and do this. And so I bought a single company. It was doing $8 million in revenue. I was the CEO of that business for seven years. Sold it to an acquisition target. Did another startup that completely failed again, where I learned once and for all that starting a business from scratch is like punishment for not understanding statistics. And then I went out and took the money, the proceeds from my first exit and went out and bought six more companies is what I did. And then while I was in the process of operating, putting all that together, I wrote by then build it. I spent like four years writing it and it came out in 2018. Beautiful, man. It's a, there's a quote that I've, that's been introduced in my life that I've really loved recently. And that's the quote, gradually, comma, then suddenly. Because yes. Love it. We always hear about these overnight successes over and over again. We don't see the 10 years of failure that created yeah. that unicorn, you yes. know, that hundred million, that billion dollar company. And I've had mm-hmm. some of those guys on the show. So let's talk to the person right now that's listening and they're maybe sitting in that corporate job. Okay. They're a rock star. They're killing it. And they are trapped by what we call the golden handcuffs. And they can't figure out for the life of them how to get out. Maybe they have a couple rental properties and they're trying to figure out, I've got like $300,000 in income that I need to replace right now. I'm bankable. I'm W2. I'm trying to figure out how to earn my freedom. And maybe they've had a couple of side hustles that have fizzled out on the side. And now they've heard about this whole world of all these baby boomers that are leaving the market that are leaving businesses. Can you talk, you said that statistics are the ones that bite you and we don't pay attention to them. Can you give some statistics about the the marketplace and what zone of opportunity we have right now? Yeah, there's right now is a confluence of three things occurring that are creating the single 
greatest opportunity of our entire lifetime. This will not repeat by the time we're all dead. Okay. No, what's happening is baby boomers own more companies than any other generation in the history of mankind anywhere in any country. Okay. And it's, it's about 49% of the entire small business economy in the United States is built with baby boomer owned businesses. All of these baby boomers are going to retire before the end of the decade, okay? And what's happening is right now, there's about 11,000 a day retiring, right? And so it's like, there's so many people. And what's happening is there's $10 trillion of business value that needs to change hands before the end of the decade. So that's one, right? You've got this like $10 trillion silver tsunami, okay? Where, you know, half the economy needs to transfer. Number two is that basically the tech boom, right? So basically... When all of these businesses were first built and got product market fit and all the rest of it, the internet didn't exist, right? And so a lot of them have very unsophisticated marketing campaigns, very unsophisticated systems inside, certainly not doing any social media or anything like that, because these are largely owned by people that they don't have any debt anymore. They've already put their kids through school and they own a business and it's generating income for them and they're not really taking any risk. It's just operating. I don't want to say like by itself, this is hard, right? Sure. But, but there's big opportunity with being able to implement a lot of the new technologies has come about since then. And moreover, if you want to go by the four hour work week, you can. One of the businesses that I bought is an e-com company that I probably spend two hours a week on and it generates over 3 million in revenue every year. So it's dope. And the third one is that it seems like every year people say this, like every year for the last 20 years, people have said this to me, but it's true today, just as it was last year, as it was the year before, which is money has never been easier to get access to, to buy these assets. Okay. Sure. And it was really the changes in the SBA that allowed people like us to go out and acquire businesses without a whole bunch of heavy collateral. Like the first company I ever bought was a printing company and it was 50,000 square feet and it had all this big iron in it and all the rest of it. And you know, yeah, it was 8 million in revenue, but it was probably just as profitable as some of these $1.5 million e-com businesses I was looking at. And it needed millions more in revenue just to cover all the infrastructure. Right? It's because the net margin was so much lower than the than the digital products. And all the overhead, like just everything, yeah. all the stuff you need. And it's one of these where, you know, the old economy businesses are awesome, but it used to be those were the only ones you could buy because they would have the assets in it that made the bank happy. And with the SBA in the party, all you need to do is be like, here's a business, I'd like to buy it. And they're like, okay, we signed this personal guarantee and I, you're gonna have to say yes. So get over that. Yeah, <laughs> in the beginning, at least. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, very true. I want to get into kind of a systematic overview, like a macro overview about the entire process. Somebody that's listening to this, holding their hand as they go through the business buying process. How to identify yeah. which business to do, how to underwrite these businesses, what separates a good business from a great business from a piece of shit, and how to finance, how to go through. But the first thing that I want to talk about which is, seems to be the sticking point that I've seen in my community and over again, is I have this concept called passionate income, where it's you get enough passive income to where you earn the right to say, okay, cool, I can build a business now based off of what I'm passionate about. But yeah. that's, an earned, that's an earned thing. So my flavor of the month was real estate that got me out of my corporate job. So what's some advice that you can give to somebody that's looking to buy their first business? What factors should they be thinking about in their head? What questions that should they be asking to acquire their first business? Which one would be correct for them? Or what are some red flags to look out for when thinking about which one to even offer on? Sure. 
there's a lot in there. So help me make sure I answer all these. Okay. So what I want to do is the thing that in my experience, okay, in over a decade of doing this, the thing that most people get wrong is they overemphasize industry and size and they way underemphasize what it is that they're bringing to the table and looking at the opportunity. Okay. Mm. And so the thing is, at the end of the day, if you like the beauty of business acquisition, like the magic is not in the de-risking, right? The magic is in what you offer as the CEO of this company. Okay. So we like to look at these businesses and be like, oh, look at this, look at this. I don't know this thing over here. But the truth is once I buy it, I'm in charge and I am the head of this beast. So that little thing that makes the big difference doesn't exist yet. And so when you even talk to brokers, their first questions are like, okay, how much money do you have? And what is what industries do you have experience in? Even they're wrong. That's not the right question, right? The question is, what do you bring to the table? Where is your skill set? And how are you going to grow a business? Okay, that's what I want to know first thing. Okay. And if you're like, I literally have no skills and can't really do anything and I don't want to work a lot. That's fine. Go buy a laundromat. Okay, you're probably going to be fine. There's if you had to pick something that like has limited upside and limited downside, I'm going to go with laundromat. I don't know much. That's boxes that people come to you and put money in like that. But most entrepreneurs want more upside, right? And they want to do something that is more fulfilling that they can grow and lead. And when you are doing something that you're good at, and you own the asset, then you know, the upside potential is what you're going to work for every day. And that's when life gets fun. And I think that I'm doing some real estate myself. I'm moving into that now. And it's one of these things where as I went through my path to try to figure this out, when I looked at real estate, what I saw was I really like the downside protection, okay, of real estate, but the upside potential, like most of the value you get is in the equity buildup, right? And the upside potential is like appreciation of the market. Now, I know you live in Austin and you're like, Walker, are you talking about real estate just goes up 100% every year? But here in St. Louis, it's 2 3% over a long period of time. So the appreciation is actually pretty slow. When you look at businesses, if I were to translate cap rates, I might be buying a building that's like a 5 or 10% cap rate, maybe in that range. The same numbers in business acquisition is anywhere from, say, 25% to 40%. You can't get, most people are trying to get 35% returns on their money when they're doing the acquisition. So the cap rate is significant, like three times higher most of the time. And the upside is where fortunes are made, right? So you get the equity buildup, you get these real estate economics at play, but you get to go to work and be active in your business. And that's what I really promote, right? Because I think that once you have a business that is successful and you're the owner, you can't ever go back. You just, it's like you're in the matrix now. The red pill. You literally see everything. And I think that like so many people, if you knew how hard it was, you wouldn't, there's this sort of this lie. I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but let let me say this. There's this sort of lie out there going right now. Okay. Like when I published Buy Then Build, no one was talking about business acquisition. Brian, nobody. I didn't, I sat on the finished manuscript for nine months before I published it because I was like worried that like it was all wrong (laughs) and it was crazy. Because I was like, why is nobody talking about this? It's so weird. And I'd spent all this time right in it. And and now there's this it's opposite seems to be a problem. It's, yes, you too can run out and buy a business and you'll be good. Most yeah. people probably shouldn't. And I want to be very clear about that. Most people probably shouldn't. Sure, go buy appreciating assets that hopefully cash flow, right? Yes, do that. 
go hang out with Brian, learn all the tips, tricks, and strategies to get that done, right? When you want to dive in and start, imagine you're starting a business from scratch. You've got to have a really great idea. Mm got to be all in, right? This is full court press, and you're going to do whatever it takes to succeed. When you buy a business, it's not any different. What happens is it's money ball for entrepreneurship. We get you on base first. We get the revenue, we get the product market fit, we get the infrastructure, we get the human capital, and we get the profits. And then you get to build from there. So you don't have to worry as much about succeeding. You mo- you mostly have to worry about like, all right, let's keep this on track and see if we can fulfill the potential of this business. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. question was, you got to focus on you and what you bring to the table. Second, the opportunity, okay? And in Buy Then Build, I've got a, an AE matrix. It's four quadrants. It's eternally profitable, turnaround, high growth, and platform, okay? Now, anyone in your audience that's in PE or familiar with PE is thinking platform means something. In acquisition entrepreneurship, I mean it in a totally different way. It's everything we just talked about. It's a platform for you and your skill set and what you can do with it, okay? The best companies that anyone can buy, right, is going to be a business that supports their skill set. So if I'm really good at direct sales and managing direct sales teams, I want to find a business with good operations and a great product and probably some people in place that are running it, you know, Mm -hmm. running the the manufacturing, for example. Okay. If I'm really good at operational efficiency and just squeezing pennies out of dollars, I want to find something that's like fat and lazy with a couple of salespeople bringing the stuff in. So I can get sales and marketing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're just looking for what's that recipe. And the thing is, is like, we love to talk in generalizations. Okay. We love to talk about, yes, let's go find like tech enabled service companies or whatever. Okay. And I rattled that off there because if, if you're ever talking to a search fund investor, that's what they're looking for. Like they have a very specific investment thesis that they look for. Right. But the thing is you and I might be looking at the same business and it's not going to work for me. And it really works for you. And I don't know what that would be. Let's just say it's home healthcare business in Austin, Texas. Right. And so you're like, okay, like I'm good at this skill set. Everyone who listens to my podcast is is old and sick. And so they all need this service. So I'm just going to advertise. <laughs> and make yeah. Whatever it is, right? Maybe you have a, an existing infrastructure or a skill set that can really make that thing hum. Whereas for me, I might be looking at that and saying, I'm really bad managing people. And mm-hmm. so buying a business that has 100 people providing service might be terrible for me, right? Because I got to be able to lead and manage and do all this with these people. I'm making up the nuances here. But the point is knowing what you're good at and what you bring to the table is the thing that will tell you if that business is good for you or not, because it's you matching with an opportunity. 100%. And I feel a lot of advice that we get in business school and kind of school in general in our traditional education, the formal education system up until this point is focus on your weaknesses. Let's focus on your weaknesses and build up your weaknesses. But I've found to be true in real estate, business, acquisition, and entrepreneurship in general, the people that have the most upsized returns are the ones that focus more on their strengths. And instead of building on their weaknesses, they hire their weaknesses or they partner with their weaknesses. So for instance, to to land the plane with what you're saying, it'd be, I'm really good at sales and marketing. That's my strong suit. That's where I've been. That's what I enjoy. So for me, it would make much more sense to buy a business that's very operationally sound and they've got really good systems and really good management procedures and really good SOPs, but they are really lacking in social media and they're really lacking in like top line revenue generation. So like that's where I could come in and really thrive. Whereas if somebody's got a sales and marketing team already humming, 
that I wouldn't be able to add as much value to that business in the vice and the opposite also applies like the inverse also applies. So if you're very operationally minded, go for the one that's sales and marketing, they've got all the revenue in the world, but their conversion and their LTV is terrible, right? You got it. You got awesome, it. Man. The other thing I'd thread in there is where opportunities really exist. There's a lot of talk about, oh, I'm going to buy a company on the cheap or I'm going to like people, they want people are trying to figure out how do I get something for nothing, right? And that's become very popular in this space too, right? It's, hey, I'm going to use non-personally guaranteed seller financing and I'm going to, and I'm going to, I'm going to wait for the recession to come because I don't want to buy all these businesses on the cheap. Um, I've been through a number of downturns and I'm going to just tell you two things happen in a recession. Number one, anyone with a decent business is sure as hell not selling. I've seen it twice. Okay. And number two, the businesses that actually are excellent are in a downward trend and all the buyers are so scared you can't get the damn thing sold. I'm not kidding. This is what happens in reality. Okay. Now you gave this example of you're great at marketing. So if you can find a business that can excel from what you bring, then you want to buy it. But, and you said, I want some existing systems and processes and all the rest of it. The other thing is if it, if it can have those things, but it doesn't. So in other words, you can see that and say, okay, I can hire someone who to come in and get it ISO certified or whatever level of EOS, whatever your thing is. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times it might be like, okay, this has good bones, but it needs to use a real estate term value add. It's going to be a value add acquisition. And then I'm going to dump my marketing on top and we're going to set the world on fire. So if you can find something that's a little lazy and you can engineer all of those things in, then you're really going to be able to increase the the private market value of that entity that you've acquired. It's, it's finding your superpower because I interviewed Cameron Harold, who wrote Vivid Vision and he's a buddy of mine now and he says, do what you do best, delegate the rest. And yeah, I love exactly. that. He's so delegate everything except for genius. And I'm like, yes. dude, yes. I'm that. like, that's freaking awesome. So you just hit on something really quickly that I'd love to hit on two parts to this question. Yep. One part is let's hit slightly on how businesses are valued for somebody that right. is maybe familiar with buying real estate and they understand cap rates, they understand how the purchase process of real estate works and they don't understand multiples yet. So let's talk about okay. how businesses are valued and then yep. let's go over that finance, those financing products. So you mentioned seller financing going through a broker. Let's, mm-hmm. let's hit on how businesses are valued and then what different loan strategies that we can get to acquire them and utilize leverage okay, the best great. way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there are three words EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, and SDE. They're all completely different things, but the world loves to just replace them as if they're all exactly the same. They're not. What we're going to focus on right now is SDE, okay? Because we, we do have limited time. I could talk for an hour about valuation, no problem. Seller's discretionary earnings. So this is going to be the anchor of any transaction, definitely under, say, 10 million, okay? And it's predominantly the unit of measure in anything under 25 million. Okay. Once you get north of 25 million, it's adjusted EBITDA. It's adjusted EBITDA. And then for publicly traded companies, it's EBITDA. Okay. And so at seller's discretionary earnings is basically, so you take the net income on the income statement. So the bottom line on the income statement, that's what you get taxed on every single year. Okay. Then we're going to start just by adding back any interest depreciation and amortization. Okay. We can go into why, 
But the argument is that that's the EBITDA number, right? Which sort of gets you to management decisions. Okay. So am I buying infrastructure and using leverage to do it? And then here's the expense of such on the PL. And of course, depreciation and amortization are non-cash expenses. So they're not actually, it's not actual cash coming out, right? Sure. So you, you take that number, that's your EBITDA, but then you're going to add over and above that any sort of addbacks. Okay. And addbacks really fall in a few categories. The first is any one-time expenses. Okay. Terrible example, but we'll all understand if there was like some legal issue and all of a sudden the owner spent $250,000 in July of 2022 to fight it. And let's just say they won and it's a good story and everyone, everything's settled. And now we're all comfortable with it. Obviously, that's not an expense that's going to continue. It was a one-time event. And that could be for infrastructure. It could be on any number of things. Number two is discretionary spending. So that's going to be like, um, I took my family to Hawaii for my board of directors meeting, but really it was a family vacation. And yeah. I just ran the whole thing on. Or I put my my new Tesla, I ran it through my business, or you know, whatever what I joined the entrepreneurs organization, right? I joined the Action Academy and now so now my I don't know what you charge for that. You should charge a hundred thousand a month, but I think it's less than that. But so I'm so any <laughs> of the groups that, that I'm a member of, all that just gets added back because it's discretionary. And then I'm sorry, there's something else I'm forgetting at the moment, but it's basically that. It's that pre-tax, it's basically if you if a business is a black box and the owner of that box has a certain certain amount of cash coming out for discretionary spending, that's what we're trying to figure out is what sure. is the cash flow coming off the asset, seller's discretionary earnings. From there, if we were in business school, we would be running a, a DCF model to come up with the net present value, but all complex mathematics, we all have shortcuts. And shortcuts is basically how many years worth of that SDE am I willing to pay for? this business. And it's usually somewhere between 2.5 times, so two and a half times that up to, let's just say five times. Okay. So anywhere from two yeah, and a half outside of the tech times. world. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> SaaS, if I'm talking with a potential seller, okay, a SaaS business is actually the only business I won't try to value in an hour. That actually takes some pretty deep analysis. So I'm being very general, right? It's yeah. like most yeah. service businesses, right? Like between two to five. Yes. Yes, that's right. And then usually you would add any inventory on top of that, right? And other working capital like AR minus AP plus inventory on top. Cool. So when we're going and we're looking up these businesses to buy, we see maybe this HVAC company listed at a 3x multiple of revenue. We see this laundromat listed at a 2x. We see this company down the street listed at a 5x. What are some of the main levers that determine what multiple a company can list for? Okay. First and foremost is popularity of the business. Okay. And and I really mean that. In, in other words, just for fun, I looked at buying someone in my network a laundromat this weekend i swear it was the, but i requested information on four of them and all of the information came back and it was like these valuations are obscene like i've been doing this a long time <laughs> and laundromats were not priced like this right and so right now there's just a there's just a surge in popularity because people see them i guess as like low workload steady cash flow and so that's really in style right now right you know, when I wrote Buy Then Build, it was all about sexy tech startups. That's what everyone was paying attention to, right? So maybe I need to go write another book about doing a sexy tech startup right now because everyone's paying attention <laughs> to laundromats. But, but anyways, so popularity of the thing, right? So if I'm going to, if I, like right now, I probably am not going to buy anything in the pet space, 
because after COVID, everyone went out and bought a pet and it just fueled these really expensive valuations on anything pet related. Um, so popularity, but then you start to get into fundamentals after that, right? And that's going to be like growth and earnings of the business, transferability of the business, meaning is there a whole bunch of specialized knowledge in the owner's head and they're walking out the door? Like, do I need to be, do I need to have a master's degree in solar engineering to run this company? That kind of stuff, just transferability, documentation. So it's amazing how many small business owners like don't actually have good financial statements and then they just file a tax return. Yeah, it's a lot. But if they've got good documentation and they've got SOPs around everything and all the rest of it, then you know, you've got a lot that a buyer can dig into. And that does increase the valuation because it's there's certain there's more certainty there. And then the other thing is growth opportunities, right? So if I own a subway, a subway, I'm I'm making this up. I have no idea. Let's just say a subway sandwich shop can make a million dollars a year. Okay. The odds that it's going to sell 1.1 or 0.9 million next year are really good. Okay. But that sandwich shop is not going to sell 2 million and then 3 million and then four. I need to buy more sandwich shops to do that. Don't you see? So if I'm just buying this one sandwich shop, the growth opportunity of that one sandwich shop as a unit is like zero. Right. And so that's an example of something that might have a lot of downside protection, but there's very limited upside to it. Whereas if, and and, in that same vein, as buyers, like we, as entrepreneurs, you can tell when all the meat has been eaten off the bone. 100%. Yeah. Sellers think that I'm going to max this thing out and then I'm going to sell it to somebody for maximum value. And it's no, you just extracted all the value. You need to sell it while it's going up if you're trying to sell for the highest price. And so if you can say, if you're looking at a business and you're like, there is absolutely no reason why this is not going to continue to grow 30 or 40% every year. I literally can't think of an, of a reason. Then you better understand that everyone's thinking the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So let's dive into the different loan products and stuff. So you said that, so we got, obviously we have business brokers. We can start on that side, but uh, from my limited understanding of buying businesses, normally when it hits a broker's desk, you're eating like the scraps off of the bone at that point. Is that, isn't that where deals go to die unless the broker brings it to you directly before they list on like biz, buy, sell and the publicly listed ones? So I think I'm a bit contrarian on this point. I believe that business brokers are the absolute best place to find deals. So, um, yeah, and I think that th- this has been my thought the whole time. And even when I was re- like in 2010, I was having meetings with people and they're like, I've been trying to find a business for 18 months and I can't like, how do I do this? And I'm like, start going to brokers and all swear to God, every person I said that to bought a company in like, six months. And it's everyone's trying to not work with the brokers. But the truth is that like, when you own a business, the odds that the business is the most valuable thing that you own is like 100%. Like, like, it's your most valuable asset, period. And the truth is that like, I remember, like, even just sitting in my printing company, like in 2008, right, I would just get letters in the mail every week and like phone calls. And it was like, hey, like, I want to buy your business. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not selling my business. Just I'm going to work. But the thing is, I'm not going to pick up the phone and be like, oh, sweet, let's go. Like I'm and not talk to anybody. At least I'm going to talk to a CPA or somebody and say like, how do I get a value for my company? And how do I take it to market? And how do I extract the value out of this thing properly? Every Mm -hmm. single time I've sold a company, I've used a business broker. Okay. And I've got, can I say this? I have a couple of deals right now. I I need to hesitate because I don't know what I'm about to say. But basically, I'm using brokers. I use brokers all the time. They can properly value the thing. 
they bring multiple buyers in. Okay. And here's the big thing. Ready? Here's the big thing. Get ready. Ready? Uh, I'm sitting down. They actually, can I cuss on your podcast? Dude, let it rip. They actually get the fucking deal closed. Okay. <laughs> I can't tell you how many hours of my life I have spent proprietary deals just trying to get the damn thing closed. And and all I need is like a broker. I just need someone coordinating the damn thing because I can't go back to the table or the seller can't come back to the table because we're like negotiating, right? There there needs to be somebody there to get it closed. And not only that, but most people are first time sellers and first time buyers, right? And yes. I've done now, a, I've honestly done a couple hundred transactions. So like, I know things now, like I can see things pretty early, but even just during that first, like 25 or 30 transactions, every single one was so completely different. Like I was like, wow, this is interesting. Right. And so if it's your first time and there's no one coordinating this thing that now look, here's the other thing I'm going to say to them. Most brokers are absolutely terrible. That was my going to be my next follow-up point is not yeah. all brokers okay. are created equal, just like all realtors. It's very no. Pareto principle. That was no. going to be my next follow-up question is how do you identify a rock star broker and how as the buyer, yeah. and especially as a first-time buyer, are we able to approach these brokers, the ones that are worth their salt? So mm-hmm. one, how do we identify them? And two, mm-hmm. how do we build these relationships with them so that we're the ones getting the first deal flow? Yeah. Okay. Copies. I think that being... The business brokerage industry is completely unregulated, okay? Any single person in our country can hang a shingle and say, I decided today I'm a business broker, okay? And as long as they don't actually work with stock transactions, which Mm -hmm. by the way, again, out of 200 transactions, I would say I've done maybe three stock deals. Like it's very rare in the sub $25 million space, okay? So these are all assets. It's it's you start an entity and you're buying the assets of the other entity. That's what's going on. Okay. You're not buying the stock of the company. And so as long as they're not buying stock of the company, it's a completely unregulated industry. Like the SEC is not involved. FINRA is not involved. It's just whatever. You don't even need a real estate license in most states. And other states are like, they should have, we should require them to do something. And so they, they require them to take a real estate. They get a real estate license. And that's the requirement, which has nothing to do, of course, with selling a business. <laughs> Fun. Now, this is so how do we find a rock star? Yeah. Look, I would love to tell you that there's a hack. Okay. But the truth is, it just takes time. Like, you what have the hell, to, Walker? Yeah. You've got you've to, obviously, you join my group, you join your group. I'm sure there's like referrals and all the rest. And we can help people find good brokers. But the thing is, if you're in Austin, Texas, and you're dead set on finding a business in Austin, Texas, okay, there's probably three brokerages in Austin, Texas that have more deal flow than the rest of them. Okay. And what you need to do is honestly, just start on biz by sell, look at where deals are coming in. The odds that you're going to actually find a deal on biz by sell is very low. Okay, but you're going to start to see, okay, who are the names and who are the players, right? And then you can start to go to their websites And my recommendation is you want to get on the email list of the individual brokers websites, because whenever they have a brand new listing, they turn around and send it to. So in this example, I was a business owner, right? Now I'm ready to sell the most valuable asset I have. I talked to my CPA who introduces me to a business broker there in Austin. I maybe talked to a few of them. And the one that is discerning will will not take on junk. Most people take on as much volume as they can. Most brokers take on as much volume as they can knowing that some percentage is going to close. Okay? 
the great brokers are discerning about what they take on and they'll slowly start to get a reputation for having good assets. Okay. So whenever you see a business that is mildly interesting in this example in Austin, Texas, from one of these three identifiable brokerage firms, every single time you see something that's mildly interesting, request information on it. Get in the practice of signing the NDA. And a lot of great buyers, in my opinion, will give very short and very brief feedback. Because what you want to do is be able to make a very fast decision. Okay. And if you can convince brokers in particular that they can be confident in you that you're going to close on a deal and speed. Okay. Brokers are looking for confidence and speed to closing. And if you can radiate that out of you, then that's what's going to, that's what's going to get you that deal more than anything. Can I give you a theory and you tell me if it's correct or not? Yes. Okay. Perfect. So yeah, since you're, this is why I love doing the podcast, by the way, because I get to just stress test all my theories. Um, So yeah. So first off, to clarify my previous statement, when I said about the brokers, like where deals go to die, I'm more so meant when it's listed by a broker is when the deal goes to die. That's what I've heard. Where you, just, you go on biz buy sell, it's like you're picking the meat off the bones. So um, biz buy sell is, is, I think I've said that exact word. I think biz buy sell is where all businesses go to die. And what I mean by that is that every business, like every business that won't ever sell is on biz buy sell and it will be there for a long time. And as a result, a large volume of these deals are old not going to sell deals. Okay. But I, in 17 years, yes, I have bought a deal off this myself, but I didn't yeah. find it there originally. I found out later it was listed there and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. It didn't bother me because people weren't going to be able to, no one was going to be able to look at the listing and understand what it, not, not like I could, I was in the building looking at it and I was like, oh, okay. Once I understand it. Yeah, sure. So my, my theory yeah. would be the same as when you're approaching like a commercial real estate broker or someone in the real estate world to where advice that I I would give would be when you're reaching out to that broker for the first time. So you're looking through biz by biz by sell, you're looking and seeing who's got all the volume because you'll have 20% of the brokers will have 80% of the volume and you're looking at who's got this. So when you do your first contact, your first introduction, your first touch point, I would recommend having a very clear buy box, knowing exactly what you want, knowing exactly where your capital is knowing exactly how the process works and saying, hey, this is what I'm looking for in this price range, this industry, this is what I'm bringing to the table. I'm capitalized. I've got this. I'm looking to close in the next 30 days. And then that broker will be your best friend and you'll be on their email list. Is that correct? Or is there anything you would add or adjust to that? No, that's spot on. And by then, build. I walk you through how to build a target statement. And if you can send that target statement to brokers, and if you're comfortable, okay, and this is what I did, I always attached my personal financial statement because it's like here, that's what they need to know. They, that like, that's what they need to know. And then today with SBA, there's certain lenders that will actually like pre-qualify you without a business. Right. And you can actually substitute your PFS with a SBA pre-qualified letter. So what if someone's listening to this right now and they've got great income, but their PFS, so for people listening, that's personal financial statement. What if they're, they don't have the balance sheet? to take down a big business. They've got cash flow. Maybe they have some cash saved up, but they're just like, okay, how do I take something down? Because we mentioned seller financing before, but you hear left and right, people take it down 10% down, down payments, SBA loans, or seller finance with the business owner themselves. So what amounts are we looking for 
technically, like traditionally, to put down for a business? And what does your balance sheet need to look like? Isn't it the like the amount of sale or what what does that look like? Excellent. So every like all things, every lender is different. Okay. Sure. However, here's the thing that like really changed how I think about this and was actually the little piece of information that sparked me to write the book ultimately, right? Hot damn. I was <laughs> I was in the entrepreneurs organization, okay? Yeah. And I got exposed to Burn Harnish, okay? Yeah. And what I realized, so it, to be an EO, you have to have a business that's generating a million dollars in revenue, okay? So I bought a business doing 8 million in revenue and I joined EO, okay? And I was like, I realized pretty quickly, like there were bigger fish than me in here. But if we're just looking at revenue, most of the people in the group were not at eight. It was like one, two, three, four, like just slowing down, right? And and through Vern Harnish's work, especially Scale Up, he talks about, look, only 4% of businesses in the United States ever exceed a million dollars in revenue. And I was wow. like, wow, really? Right. So I was like, wait a minute. What? So we all know that if you start a business, the odds that you're going to succeed are like 10%. And if you talk to real entrepreneurs, they'll tell you it's not even that high. Okay. That's, go talk to entrepreneurs. You're like, you think it's 10, 10% succeed? And they're like, no, it's not. But what we don't, what's, what's right behind the curtain is that out of all the ones that do succeed, out of all of those businesses, 96% of them never exceed a million dollars in revenue. A million dollars in revenue was so laughably small. When I was getting my MBA, we would have completely ignored businesses of that size. And then you start. And this to is top out. line revenue or net? Top line revenue. Top line. Dude, revenue. we're gonna we're gonna be over a million top line this year. Holy awesome. crap! Nice job. You're it. You're dude. Excited. Yeah, that's freaking so, awesome. <laughs> so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Is that so? That's when I realized. Wait a minute. <clears throat> Product market fit is unarguably in place after you hit a million dollars and after you exceed a million dollars. Okay, that's the sort of theory that comes out of Vern's brain. And being in the space, I, I began to just agree with that, okay? And you can choose to agree with that statement or not, but the point is that if you buy a company that's 1.01 million in revenue, you are operating one of the largest 4% of companies in the world, okay? Wow. And so you can buy one of the largest 4% of companies in the world for 10% cash infusion, okay, and 90% SBA loan. No percent down. What does your balance sheet need to look like to qualify for that loan? Okay. So honestly, if you have, okay, let's do some reverse math. So if you have, I want people that I really want people to have two or $300,000, like liquid assets. If you have that, you're not going to have any problems. Okay. Because you're going to, you're not going to have any problems getting the financing in order to close on the business. Okay. Because what they, what the bank really wants to see is yes, you will give it to you 10% down. They want runway. They want runway. They need to see that you got gas in the tank back here. Now, to use your example, if I'm if I have a weak balance sheet, okay, and I'm making a ton of money from my crack cocaine deal. Sorry, let me explain. If you are listening, it's his chiropractic shop. (laughs) If you are if you are listening to this podcast, okay, if you're listening to Brian's podcast, you're listening to it because a lot of your profile is like, how do I? get out of my being an employee and into ownership? How do I own assets that appreciate in cash flow? And the trick is that when you're a W2 employee, especially the older you get, okay, and the bigger that check gets from your employer, from the company that you don't own, that you're spending your life building the value of, okay, 
that check that comes in every week or every two weeks or every month or whatever is crack cocaine and you need to get off the junk. Okay. You got to get off that. That's the whole thing. And it gets so hard the older you get in the more, it, like, that's Have you I, heard that quote? Have you qu- heard the quote on it? I think it's Nassim Taleb said, the three most dangerous addictions left are heroin, carbohydrates, and a monthly salary. I love that. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard that. I love it. It's great. Carbs. Yeah. Very yeah. fair. fair. <laughs> That's great. So you recommend people go the 10% down SBA route. What happens when the SBA process is insanely bogged down? Because I know, especially coming out of COVID, we were looking at six months, eight mm-hmm. months nine months to close. Mm-hmm. Is that still the case? Or it wasn't is this- that long? That, look, COVID was actually was obviously a outlier. Yeah, yeah, an outlier. So look, the SBA is slow. The SBA is literally like going, it's a government program. So it's like going to the post office to get a loan. Like people, they're literally like, you get, come on, can you like get, I'm sorry, I'm not ragging on people over the post office, but I think we've all had the experience, right? Which is just- We can rag on them. It's okay. It's a safe place. <laughs> it's great, like- you guys. No. <laughs> It's just, and so it's a very similar process, right? And they've got a, bu- a bunch of boxes they're trying to check. They can, they can, they can get it done in eight to eight to ten weeks. Sometimes twelve. That's eight to twelve weeks is pretty normal, right? I think that as you get a business under offer, okay, if you're getting an SBA loan, if I'm brokering a deal, okay, like I own companies, I teach people how to buy businesses, and I help sellers sell, okay, and when I help sellers sell. Whenever we get a deal under contract, I will tell the buyer, I know you want to dive into all the information and figure out how the sausage is made. I get it. I know. I've been there. Here's the deal. I'm not giving you access to any information until you get all of your SBA paperwork done. Okay? And the reason is because the SBA is going to be the bottleneck of the whole process. And I've seen this so many times that I already know how it ends. And it ends with all of us. It ends with the buyer comfortable all of the documents completed, and we're all sitting around waiting, usually for weeks, for the SBA to finalize. Okay, and if you're a buyer and you're like, "Hold on, I don't know that I want to get that going because I'm not a hundred percent confident I'm going to close yet." We're on day one. I'm going to say, "I understand," because you need time to sit in that business kind of spiritually and work it out and absorb it in your body before you're going to be willing to close. And you're going to need data to try to understand how it all diligence. Works. Yeah. And so that's going to come in the time. But if you don't get that SBA loan going, you're not going to be able to close anytime soon. And time kills all deals. So you got to get that going. And you can always back out. All you have to do, pro tip, all you have to do is whisper to the bank, I don't want to close on this deal. And you're fine. So speaking of time, we use that to waste everyone's time. Yeah, it is what I'm saying. We'll, we'll keep that in the back. We'll keep that in the back pocket. Speaking of time, we're at our time right now. Walker, dude, I appreciate all of that, man. This has been awesome, and I want to do a part two with you to where we can go into the diligence process, the Thanks. nuts and bolts of what happens after we get that LOI signed for the business and we're under contract, and then trying to figure out what looks good, what doesn't. So we'll definitely have a part two in the future. But in the meantime, my brother, where can people find you? Where can they get the book? And what's coming next? Yeah, we, you can go to buythenbuild.com has plenty of free resources for all this kind of stuff. We run the premier accelerator called Acquisition Lab at acquisitionlab.com. I've got a YouTube channel with tons of free information and I'm not huge on social, but I am on LinkedIn. You can catch me over there. So that's pretty much, and then we've got a newsletter that we send out every week. So if you go to buythenbuild.com and basically sign up for anything, it'll give you the opportunity to receive that. 
You got it. You heard it here first, guys. Buythembuild.com. Go get the book. Go sign up for the newsletter. Go give him a connection request on LinkedIn. Walker, brother, thank you for part one, man. This has been awesome. Thanks so much. See you soon. All right. With that, this has been Brian Walker with the Action Academy Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, signing off. Hey, real quick. If you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want, and I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.